As a youth, she was hungry for God, but turned to Islam. She then worked for the United States government in anti-terrorism. Now, eventually she found Christ, but the twists and turns along the way make for a remarkable story. And you're going to hear it in its entirety in just a few minutes right here. Welcome again to The Land and the Book. Our teacher is a Middle East expert. And in fact, Charlie, you have just returned from Israel. Welcome home. Well, thank you, John. Uh, I'm not sure what time zone I'm on, but <laughs> ready to get started again. All right. How about a couple of impressions as we begin our look at current events this week? Well, um, it was amazing. Uh, Israel is coming back from tourism, but it's still not back. Uh, they're, they're still frayed around the edges. I was telling the, the people in our group on this last trip, it's like having a car that's been up on blocks for 18 months. It's a great car, but the uh, oil sudden is in the crankcase. The uh, gas has a little oil in it, and it's smoking, but it's starting to rev to life, and they're looking forward to that. Well, I know you had a number of impressions, as I did, with regard to the construction that we're seeing all throughout Israel. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Israel seems like they're trying to make up for a, a severe housing shortage in the land. You know, their population continues to grow. Uh, young adults are getting married. They're starting families. Those families need a place of their own where they can put down roots. And we hear in news reports about Israel building thousands of new homes in the West Bank. But those reports are somewhat distorted. Most of those so-called West Bank settlements are actually towns within five miles of the Knesset, Israel's capital building. Uh, they're being built in already established communities where these young adults grew up. They now want to continue living in the same area. Uh, the housing is needed to support natural population growth within the established community. There's also a great deal of new housing being built in other places in Israel. Yeah, I was amazed as we drove along Mount Carmel near a place called Yokneum in the Jezreel Valley and just seeing hundreds of apartments and houses going up on what had been farmland until mm -hmm. just a year or so ago. You know, that was mind-boggling yeah. to see all the money that's being spent on building housing. And it's not just housing. Entire industrial parks and malls and office buildings are, are popping up throughout the country. Now, one unwelcome byproduct of all of that was the traffic congestion. Uh, traffic along that Tel Aviv-Haifa corridor and the Tel Aviv-Jerusalem corridor looks more like what we see in, in our cities across the United States in rush hour. Uh, the original highways and roads just aren't adequate to handle that increased volume of traffic. Now, they're continuing to expand mass transit. They have high-speed rail connecting the cities and light rail and buses trying to whisk people through the cities. But so far, it's just a little too late and uh, not quite enough to make a real dent in the country's traffic congestion. But hopefully in the months and years ahead, they're going to start getting a handle on that one downside to all of the growth. Charlie, one of the uh, things that caught me by surprise traffic-wise was that you expect Jerusalem to be snarly. You expect the traffic jams there. But in the north of Israel, we encountered all kinds of gridlock. That I had never seen. Oh, I know it. Uh, and that's that Tel Aviv-Haifa corridor. Uh, it took us three and a half hours to go from the airport up to uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that's an hour more than mm -hmm. I would have expected normally. And uh, it's just uh, late at night, and it seemed as if it was uh, 4 p.m. in rush hour traffic. <laughs> so that's the part that they can't yeah. get a hold on. In fact, as someone said, uh, that was on Route 6, which is their toll road. So now you actually pay a toll to be stuck in traffic before you could do it for free. <laughs> well, you and I went through a number of hoops to get into Israel, and the group that you are right now uh, leading or finished leading had to do the same thing. Reports say Israel, though, is relaxing those entrance requirements. That sounds encouraging. So what can tourists expect in the coming days? 
Well, Israel has announced that it will relax entrance requirements for tourists, but that doesn't always mean it'll be easier for tourists to actually get into Israel. Part of the problem is that the policies announced don't always get adopted by Israel's coronavirus cabinet. For example, they said they would allow in tourists who had only received the first two doses of the vaccine rather than requiring the booster shot. But then an official said, well, those who hadn't received the booster would need to be tested every other day throughout their tour. Hmm. And someone else said, and should any of those people then receive a positive result on one of those tests, the entire group would then be quarantined. So what they intended as a concession to relax restrictions could actually put an entire group at risk should a participant follow them. Another problem is that once Israel announces a new policy, it doesn't remain consistent. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett met with Russian President Putin, and then Israel announced they were going to allow Russians who had received Russia's Sputnik V vaccine into the country, and that new policy was to begin this past Monday. And then on Monday, they announced, well, actually, it doesn't start today. It won't start until December 1. Well, it's that kind of last-minute change that's created much of the confusion. You know, we experienced that ourselves. Uh, You remember when we were flying to Israel, a policy change took place just as we were scheduled to fly. So we we filled out the health entry form within 24 hours of flying and then had to fill out a new health entry form the following day while we were still in transit. Now, it wasn't that much different from the old form, but suddenly everyone approved for entry had their approval changed while in flight, requiring them to seek approval yet again before actually being allowed into the country. And I, I say to people, don't get me wrong, it's worth the hassle to get to Israel. But for those who've never been, it just feels like an ever-changing series of hoops that needed to be jumped through just to arrive. And sadly, I think that's discouraging some individuals from coming. So hopefully, Israel's different governmental entities will start working together to promote tourism. You know, they need to set clear, consistent, common-sense goals and then keep them in force for a reasonable length of time. And when changes are needed, well, they need to make sure they're clearly communicated early enough to allow those already in the pipeline to be able to adapt to those changes. Yeah. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host here on The Land and the Book, who has spent about three weeks over in Israel. We're looking at current events. This is an interesting story. Iran has said it will resume its nuclear talks with the West on November the 29th. What are the chances the two sides will actually reach an agreement? And what will happen if the talks stall yet again? Well, in spite of issuing some veiled threats, I think the West appears to be far more anxious to reach an agreement than Iran is to reach that agreement. Uh, The Biden administration has said it would roll back all sanctions imposed by the United States following Iran's resumption of nuclear enrichment. And apparently the U.S. has also agreed not to demand further concessions on Iran's missile program. But Iran has said it wants all sanctions lifted, including those imposed for previous violations of human rights. U.S. Special Envoy for Iran, Robert Malley, began a 10-day swing through this region in the past week to try to coordinate the response to Iran from all interested parties. His itinerary included a visit to Israel. Now, a concern among some in Israel was that he was one of the architects of the original deal with Iran, which Israel felt was fatally flawed. As the new negotiations approach, Israel has said it will retain its right to respond to Iran militarily, should Iran reach a point where they could existentially threaten Israel. Now, it seems likely that the U.S. is going to try and put pressure on Israel not to respond militarily to Iran in a way that could jeopardize the talks. Unfortunately, Iran could use that pressure to try and force Israel to stop attacking its convoys in Syria that are taking advanced weapons to Hezbollah. 
Iran also believes it can use the talks to wring still additional concessions from the West, perhaps to get the West to put pressure on Israel. So let's hope the West isn't so desperate for a deal that they cave into Iranian pressure. Uh, One lesson the world learned during Neville Chamberlain's negotiations years ago with Adolf Hitler was that appeasement will not necessarily result in peace. Well, Charlie, as you and Kathy are just home from Israel now, unpacking all the suitcases, mulling over all those experiences, what other impressions do you have from your three weeks there? You know, this might sound somewhat scattershot, but first, water is still just a precious commodity in the Middle East. We're almost three weeks into November, but the winter rains haven't yet begun. Uh, Israelis hope they'll start soon. In fact, there's a chance at least for rain the next few days, but The first major storm isn't predicted until the very end of the month and then into early December. Now, Israel can survive because of all those desalination plants they built. But the other countries in the Middle East, and we're talking from Turkey down through Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Iran, are desperate for rain. I just keep thinking, God has said he'll send rain on the just and the unjust. And I think our listeners ought to start praying and just asking God to bless the region with rainfall this winter. Uh, The second thing that came to mind, I was struck by how dependent Israelis are on tourism. On multiple occasions, individuals would approach me or or our group or someone in the group and just thank us for being there. Tourism is the sixth most important industry in Israel's economy. In Israelis, they miss the tourists. Uh, They also miss the money they bring in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I met a bus driver I've known for years. He was with a small group and he said it was his first job as a tour bus driver in 18 months. I heard the same thing from a longtime Arab worker at a hotel in Jerusalem. The hotel hired him back after 18 months because our group and another one were at the hotel finally. Now, each individual like that, they represent a family unit, the spouses and children, and the money they earn is spent in their own community to buy food and clothing. You know, those dollars ripple through the economy like like life-giving blood transfusions. As a result, I think we should be praying that tourism continues to grow so these Jewish and Arab men and women can go back to earning a solid living. And one final impression, John, Israel might have been closed to tourists, but that doesn't mean the country stagnated. Current hotels were renovated and some new ones are being built. Uh, Sites were updated. There's new signage and new access was improved. Uh, In fact, right now is a great time to visit Israel, even with the hassle of jumping through all those ever-changing hoops we talked about. Tourism is on the rise, but it's still only a fraction of what it was two years ago, which means right now it's easier for a group to visit sites than it's been for a long, long time. And that's the good news from Charlie Dyer, just back from Israel. Up next, Hungry for God, the story of someone who left Islam to follow Jesus. Next on The Land and the Book. Her parents were born in Iran but made their way to the United States. As a youth, she was hungry for God, but never found him in her secular home. That's when she turned to Islam. But that was just the beginning of her spiritual journey, as you're about to discover next. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. We're honored that you'd spend some time with us today. Whether you're listening online, on air, or via podcast, welcome. I'm John Geiger, and before we meet today's guest, here's a quick thought on sharing Jesus with a Muslim friend. Western and Islamic values, I'm sure you've noticed they're not necessarily the same. Let's talk about that with Samia Johnson of Call of Love Ministries. Well, for starters, there's honor versus respect. How are these different? 
they are very different. With the Western world, it is uh, key that we feel respected mm -hmm. because once we're respected in the place of influence among our family, then people will listen to us. Uh, we're accredited. But that's not the case with the Muslim world. Honor is more important. What does honor mean? Honor means that you do not bring shame to your family, to your community, and to Islam itself. So a Muslim's good acts bring honor and pride to the family and the community. What's honorable or shameful is dictated by the Islamic practices, not by society and not by your own values. And believe it or not, John, death is the ultimate sacrifice a Muslim might have to pay if they bring shame to their community. Okay, so how can I use this or springboard off this in my conversation, my relationship with a Muslim friend? I will always tell them that I brought shame to God because of my sin, mm -hmm. and Jesus brought me back my honor. If I believe in him, I will become honorable in the sight of God. Samia Johnson, who's written The Guide to Loving Your Muslim Neighbors, here on The Land and the Book. Hedy Amiramadi is a Christian Post exclusive columnist. Formerly, she was, and I do want to emphasize was, a devout Muslim for two decades and worked in the U.S.-Afghanistan embassy. Now, having experienced the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, she works each and every day to proclaim his name. It's an honor to connect with you today on The Land and the Book, Hedia. Thank you so much, John. It's such an honor to be with you and your listeners today. A video at your website I saw introduces us to your professional background working in counterterrorism. There are photos of you with Presidents Bush, Obama, Trump, Prince Charles, also the president of Indonesia. And before we talk about your spiritual journey, let me ask, how did you find yourself working in these circles? Well, it was a amazing road, but I started off in the mid-90s researching, which is kind of went tandem with my spiritual journey, but researching extremist movements in the United States and around the world, because the first mosque I encountered was an extremist one. And I was just amazed at how this could happen in the United States. And so in the mid-90s, there was only about a handful of FBI agents that were even interested in terrorism. And so we happened to bump in together, <laughs> bump into each other, as some would laugh and describe it. But that is actually what started my career in counterterrorism. And then I moved to D.C. and after 9-11, I had built a solid reputation. I had served in Afghanistan and I just became a federal contractor where my advice and reports and research was sought by every administration since um, since W. Hmm. Now, let me confess a stumbling point for me. I, you know, in my cursory glance at the website, I presumed this was all after you received Jesus. For to me, oh, it no. was it was very, very confusing that a Muslim, a practicing Muslim, was involved in counterterrorism, equating the two. Uh, so that shows you my blind spot, and I confess that. You know, what's your reaction to that? Oh, sure. I, I mean, that's why I was so interested in the career, because the community I became a part of eventually was a mystical community. They're known as the Sufis. And I had discovered quickly that they had been in a knockout, dragout, very brutal and violent struggle against the extremists all over the world. And so basically, before radical Islam set its sights on the West, it was persecuting its own mystical interpretation of the faith because it needed to supplant it with their extreme interpretation. And the only way it could impose it 
is if they basically destroyed what existed. Mm -hmm. And so it's connection to that community, which gave me insight to understand how the radicalists were recruiting young people, changing communities, basically engaged in this cultural genocide. And um, I think that's why it was of interest to the U.S. government and to others. Raised in a secular home by parents, again, both from Iran, you felt a spiritual hunger of some kind. Take us on a super condensed version of that journey from Islam and eventually to Christianity. Well, I was raised secular and it was a really, it was a fun lifestyle, but eventually it was just filled with sin and it was difficult to find meaning. And so the natural fit was to find meaning in Islam because it was culturally familiar to my parents and to my family. I was devout for, you know, 20 plus years, but I never had that hole filled. It was always this sense of running and running to fill laws and commandments, but there was no personal relationship with God because Islam doesn't promise that. He promises God is close to you, but you're never in communication with God. So basically it's a one-way street where you throw prayers up and you have no idea whether he heard him. The most difficult part was that you never are promised salvation. So here you are struggling your whole life to pray and to worship, and then you can get to heaven or to judgment, and God would be like, sorry, I'm not taking you. And so I couldn't deal with that kind of unknown. Mm -hmm. And at one point in my career, I'm at the FBI headquarters, and I decide I'm going to take my head cover off. And the religion unraveled. And I hadn't met Jesus at this time, but I knew I had to leave Islam. Hmm. And as soon as I left Islam, it wasn't more than a couple of months that I felt lost again. And I literally began this search for what was going to fill this hole. And I found a pastor on YouTube from a tweet of a person I didn't even know. And Mm. it was literally life-changing. And I came to Christ from the internet, (laughs) literally. Wow. So how did your family respond? I have to ask that. They've come from Iran. They fled Iran. They're in the U.S. They're raising you in a secular environment. How did they respond? Well, I had such a difficult road, not just difficult professional career, but also just spiritually and emotionally, such a difficult road in Islam. And they saw me struggling that they saw also when I was baptized and I accepted Christ, how transformative it was and how much joy and peace that it brought me that they've been very supportive. It's been one of the greatest gifts in my life, support from my parents. If I could push just a bit further, what about their own spiritual journey in light of yours? Well, you know, I don't stop, uh, I don't stop witnessing to them. I, I'm constantly telling them about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but, you know, Muslims have their own interpretation of Jesus, so you never really know if you're getting through, yeah. but I won't give up, and yeah. I hope uh, that they'll accept him before, before they pass from the earth. Hedy Amir Ahmadi was born to Iranian parents here in the U.S., brought up in a secular home. God works supernaturally in her life to reveal himself using, of all things, a tweet from somebody she didn't know, as she just mentioned. And then she, here she is watching some online teaching. Today, she's a writer and speaker, boldly proclaiming Jesus. Let me ask, what are obstacles that American Muslims face coming to Christ that evangelicals maybe often overlook? Well, of course, the obvious, where the apostasy law is the penalty for changing your religion out of Islam. So people exact that punishment, even in the United States, where you can lose your entire social network. That's what happened to me. So the cost, the personal, social, community cost is very, very high. 
And that's, I think, the biggest struggle that Muslims have with coming to Christ. But I encourage you to please share the gospel, to tell your listeners that do not be afraid of that cost. You don't have to worry about that. Leave that to the Lord Jesus Christ, because God wanted that no one should perish, and we have to provide them the opportunity to live in eternity with Jesus Christ and to receive salvation. So it has been, of course, a life-changing experience for me, and I would hope that everybody else would have that opportunity, that every other Muslim would have that opportunity. And the Lord makes a way. He makes a way when there is mm-hmm. no way. So please just share the gospel, share your experience, share what the Lord has done in your life, and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Hedia, I have not had the experiences that you've had, but I have traveled to a number of Muslim countries, spent time there. And when I mentioned to them that in the U.S., Islam is portrayed as, quote, a peaceful religion, they laugh. Uh, and and so I, I guess my question is, why do we hear about two different versions of Islam in the U.S., a peaceful version? And, and of course, there's a much more oppressive version seen in many countries overseas why the difference, and why does American media never show us the oppressive Islam? Well, this is a centuries-long struggle. So this is what I wrote about. This is what I built a career on. This is what the U.S. government doesn't seem to ever get right, because, quite frankly, our diplomats don't understand religion. But the struggle for the soul of Islam has been going on for about 200 years now within Islam. So when they say a peaceful religion, it's basically a cultural normative practice of Islam. So like any other religion, after hundreds of years of being part of society, the religion evolves and changes and and almost dilutes so that it becomes a cultural practice. People connect to God, but it's more about the festivals and family and tradition. And then come the rise of extremist Islam, which was basically trying to get rid of all of the cultural Islamic practices and supplant it with this very extreme radical interpretation that is seeking political and economic power. And so just like communism or just like socialism, it's trying to create change in society for the sake of power. It's the difference between the haves and the have-nots. And the problem is you can't change a billion people without extreme persecution, death, massacre, changing of curriculum in schools. It was, it's a massive undertaking. So this undertaking began over 100 years ago in Muslim countries. Western countries were just recently exposed to it. So a lot of those uh, basically political ideologues moved to the United States. And their interpretation of Islam is what you see because they're the ones that set up the national Muslim organizations, the PR firms, the lobbying groups, so that you would see a particular interpretation of Islam, even though that's not what's happening in the rest of the world. Hmm. Hedia Miramadi is a Christian Post-exclusive columnist, formerly a devout Muslim herself for two decades. She worked in the U.S.-Afghanistan embassy, and after experiencing the redemptive power of Jesus, she works every day now to proclaim his name. Well, we mentioned Afghanistan. Months ago, the world watched the violent takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban. You worked in the U.S.-Afghan embassy and would have perspectives on this crisis most of us would never dream of. Uh, What thoughts uh, came to your mind as you saw this unfold? Well, like most Americans, it was so tragic that we spent so much money and lost so many American lives and basically left without much to show for it. 
And I think that's the greatest tragedy for most of us is that we didn't, we didn't even accomplish the most important goal, which was to make sure Al-Qaeda could never attack the United States. So we saw Al-Qaeda beginning to reconstitute, and we have you know, yet to see what that's going to mean moving forward. But it's also the inability to accomplish even the much broader goals like bringing democracy or at least a form of democracy and freedom to Afghanistan that would stay, that would have longevity. But despite the failures, we did manage to spread the gospel in a country that was literally 99.8% Muslim. So I am very grateful for the opportunity that the underground church in Afghanistan has grown and also the opportunity we provided to women and girls to get an education and to see what the rest of the world is like. And I believe that they're going to continue that fight. How can listeners use your website, which is resurrectministry.com, as a tool to reach their Muslim friends? I really encourage people to please, there's a whole about section that is about my life change and my testimony. And then I blog. I blog about why I left um, Islam for Jesus Christ. What are the most important points that have affected me? And I really encourage your listeners to just share the website, share some of the articles, and tell your Muslim friends that they can contact me directly. If they want to criticize me, if they want to ask a question, I answer all of those emails personally. So I encourage your listeners to use that as an opportunity to connect their friends with me, and I'm happy to help any way I can. What a great conversation this has been. I hope you'll join us again sometime. Thank you. I would love to. All right. Again, you can visit resurrectministry.com, and we've got a link to their website at our website, which is thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Up next, Charlie Dyer answers your questions here on The Land and the Book. Fasten your seatbelts. Things are about to move quickly here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. And the reason we're going to move quickly is because we've got to. So many folks have got very intriguing questions. They have emailed us. We want to get to as many as possible on this next segment. So, Charlie, your your Bible is open. you got a smile on your face. You're ready to dig in. I am, John. All right. Let's start with Peggy's question. She says, I'm confused about the two wars of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Do one of these wars occur before the rapture or after? Is the war in Ezekiel 39, the Battle of Armageddon? By the way, I really appreciate your clearing up for these questions. I enjoy your program on WPGH on Saturday evenings. Charlie, your thoughts? Well, and I'll I'll start this way. I, I really only see one battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's one battle there of Gog and Magog. Uh, The first 16 verses of chapter 38 focus on the invasion itself, as God explains the, the who, the what, and the why of the attack. And then beginning in 38, 17, and going through the rest of the two chapters, God announces how and where his judgment will take place on these invaders. Now, I also see a distinction between the battle of Gog and Magog and the battle, or some would call it the campaign of Armageddon, found in Revelation 16. Ezekiel's battle occurs when Israel is back in the land, but it says they're living securely. But by the time of the gathering at Armageddon in Revelation, all but one of God's seal and trumpet and bowl judgments have been poured out on the earth. 
Uh, the Gentiles will have already trampled down the city of Jerusalem, it says in Revelation 11, for 42 months. And uh, the dragon Satan will have tried to destroy the woman Israel herself who had to flee in the wilderness for three and a half years. So rather than living in peace and in a land of unwalled villages, as Ezekiel pictures, the gathering at Armageddon occurs at a time when the nation of Israel will be experiencing uh, the most severe time of persecution ever in her history. I, I see both of these battles happening after the rapture, uh, one taking place toward the beginning of the tribulation period, one at the very end of the tribulation. Beverly asks, what is the interpretation of the dream that Jacob had, the so-called Jacob's ladder dream in Genesis 28? Well, I think the meaning of Jacob's vision can be found in the context. Uh, Jacob was fleeing his brother and leaving the land of promise. Uh, the questions in his mind must have been whether he was being rejected by God. You know, the ladder or stairway with the angels ascending and descending was this visual reminder of God's presence with him, even as he was fleeing. And then God reaffirmed for Jacob the very promise he had given to Abraham and Isaac. God says right at that time, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. That's an amazing reaffirmation. And finally, God did promise Jacob that he would be with him and watch over him, he said, wherever you go and bring him back to the land. So in that sense, the ladder or the stairway was that invisible reminder that angels would carry Jacob's prayers to God and that in response, God would send his angelic helpers to watch over Jacob. Now, I love what Jacob did. He responded in faith by worshiping the Lord at that spot and naming it the house of God and vowing, and actually it's interesting, for the first time in his life, he vowed, the Lord will be my God. So in that sense, the dream was the event that moved Jacob into acknowledging his relationship to the God of his fathers. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer, who's answering your questions via email, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Tirza says, I was reading Mark chapter 11 and came across this verse that says, quote, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Why does it mention David? Why does it say our father, David? What does David have to do with this? Can you help me understand why the Bible makes a connection with Jesus and David so frequently? Yeah, well, okay. In Mark 11, uh, the passage being shouted by the multitude is in four lines that are parallel. Uh, the first and last lines, they say, Hosanna, and then the last one, Hosanna in the highest, are a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase. It's calling on God to save or deliver them. And then in the middle two lines, they're also parallel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is, blessed is the Messiah who's coming. And then blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Uh, so the two lines together are asking God to bless them by sending the promised Messiah and to set up his messianic kingdom. Now, in speaking those words, the people are looking back to God's covenant made with David back in 2 Samuel 7, where God promised David, your house and your kingdom will endure before me. Later in Amos 9, God promised to restore David's fallen tent. In Jeremiah 33, God promised a time would come when he'd make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. And he says, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. In other words, God promised throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a physical descendant of David and will reign as king and fulfill the promises God made to David. Now, I think that's what the people were asking. Uh, the connection, by the way, between Jesus and David, I think is twofold. First, Jesus was a physical descendant of David. Uh, the genealogies of Jesus, both in Matthew and Luke, help establish that. But second, 
His connection to David was also prophetic. Jesus is the promised Messiah who will come to fulfill all the promises God made to David. What the people missed in Mark 11, though, is the fact that before Jesus comes to reign as king, he had to first come as the suffering servant to die for our sins. Uh, The cross had to precede the crown. Raj says, I'm continually amazed that some Christians apparently believe Muslims worship the same God that Christians worship. Do non-Messianic Jews worship the same God Christians and Messianic Jews worship? Isn't the claim that Jews and Muslims both worship a monotheistic creator God unhelpful? Why not acknowledge the limited rightness they do embrace and share Jesus as the human and complete revelation of that one God? Well, I do see a difference between the God of non-Messianic Jews and the God of Muslims in this sense. Though non-Muslim Jews don't believe Jesus is the promised Messiah or the Son of God, the God revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures is the same triune God that we worship. We understand a fuller revelation. They've just been blinded to that reality. And I do see a distinction in approach as being helpful, though, because I see a fundamental difference in what Muslims and Jews need to be convinced about. It's easier to use the Word of God to share truth about Jesus with devout Jewish friends because we both share a common point of origin regarding the truthfulness of the Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament. However, I need to use a different approach when sharing with a Muslim friend who generally sees the Bible as nothing more than a corrupted book. Uh, The bottom line for me is that with Jews, I need to focus on the reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Savior. With Muslims, I need to focus on the reality that Jesus is God's eternal Son and Savior. The Bible of the Jews allows for a Messiah who's divine, while the Quran does not. Here's a question concerning marriage. We see God commanding people in the Old Testament to be responsible to their wife or wives for life. In the New Testament, we do not see anybody separating families where a husband had more than one wife. But today we know of missionaries going overseas and commanding people that are in such a circumstance to put away the wives that they married after the first wife. Can you show me a scripture commanding such actions or maybe even an example that Jesus or one of the apostles uh, did that would separate families as such? Yeah, a lot of questions asked there. So let me start first with God's ideal about marriage. His ideal plan for humanity was one man with one woman for life. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned, God's ideal was marred, and as a result, God permitted polygamy and he permitted divorce, though they were never part of his ideal plan for humanity. And even then, God commanded Israel's kings not to multiply wives. He provided examples in the Old Testament of family dysfunction and heartache that resulted when a husband had multiple wives. I think of Jacob and his two wives and two concubines as a great example of what not to do. Now, you asked about any scripture that commanded an individual to put away multiple wives. I actually do see examples of that in Ezra 11, Nehemiah 13, and and, and Malachi chapter 2. Now, they're all written during the post-exilic period. In Malachi 2, God rebukes the people for dealing treacherously against the wife of your youth and tells them he hates divorce. And apparently the men had divorced their Jewish wives to take other wives from surrounding pagan nations. Nehemiah demanded the Jewish men to stop such practices. And Ezra even commanded the people to separate from your foreign wives. In other words, God didn't just want these individuals to remarry or stay with their Jewish wives. He commanded them to separate from or divorce their non-Jewish wives. It was a special time in Israel's history, but it's at least one clear example where people were told to put away those additional foreign wives. 
The New Testament doesn't really address that issue directly, though it follows the Old Testament in commanding marital faithfulness to one's spouse. And I'm not sure how mission boards and missionaries handle this because I've not encountered all their policies on the field, so I can't speak to that. And that's a look at uh, the questions that have come into us here at The Land and the Book, where we encourage you to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. The podcast that we've got available to you is a neat way for you to hear today's program and share us with your friends. You know, a lot of people don't live anywhere near a radio station like you enjoy, and so they can't access The Land and the Book any other way. So why not share the podcast with them when you visit thelandandthebook.org. Don't go away. Charlie's about to open his Bible, take us to a passage, connect it with a place here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land of the Book. And if you've ever been to the land, the Holy Land, and you've been there on the Sea of Galilee, you know the fishing is terrific. Coming up on Charlie's devotional, he talks about the best fishing in all Israel. Hey, first, let's take a quick look at the land of Israel as it's impacted a life that's been there. Check out this Holy Land experience. I'm Candy Lamb from Irving, Texas. I came here in the late 90s. There have been a lot of changes, a lot more people, a lot more conflict that's going on, but I still always felt safe. The thing about this trip is that we have uncovered more and more about what the scriptures say, about where the places are. It's just been phenomenal to really know the deep history and the perfect planning of God's people. We studied the tabernacle last year, and I saw what a detailed person our God is, and he certainly is even today in Israel. I'm Olga Griffin from Vail, Colorado, and for me this trip was about the moments and the people. Each spot had a special moment and an aha moment, as well as each dinner, each breakfast, each bus ride had special people on it, and they taught me and shared their stories with me, and it was great. Charlie, I'm always amazed we never fail to visit the Sea of Galilee and not see all kinds of fishing boats out on the water. Lots of good fishing in Israel. Uh, That's true. And yet we're not going to the Sea of Galilee today, John. This is amazing. I'm not a fisherman. Uh, I think I've made that clear on this program. Yep. But for all of you listening who are, I've got a special treat for you today. I'm going to take you to the best fishing spot in all Israel. I've got my hook ready to go, Charlie. Okay. And and everybody else, grab your pole, grab your tackle box, and oh, make sure you bring a hat sunglasses, and a large bottle of sunscreen because we're (laughs) heading to the Dead Sea. We're heading from 2,500 feet above sea level to 1,400 feet below sea level, the lowest place on the face of the entire planet. Jerusalem gets 23 inches of rain a year, but just 15 miles away at the Dead Sea, rainfall drops off to four inches a year. And most of the clouds we saw in Jerusalem seemed to stop at the Mount of Olives, almost like an invisible fence kept them from straying any further to the east. Okay, we've reached Qumran. Most people come here to see where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, but I brought you here because it's a great spot to see the northern part of the Dead Sea. It's a clear day and we can see all the way across to Jordan. But I want you to focus on the sea over there to our right, just a little south of where we're standing. You see that area of green down by the shore? That's Einfeshka, about two miles away. 
there's a freshwater spring that drains into the Dead Sea right there. While we're here, I want to read a message of hope from the book of Ezekiel. In the first half of the book, Ezekiel wrote to his countrymen, telling them that Jerusalem and the temple were about to be destroyed because of their sin. God had been patient with his disobedient people, waiting for them to repent. But that time of waiting was now over, and God was coming to judge his people. Ezekiel's companions in captivity refused to believe his message until the survivors from Jerusalem arrived in Babylon with the sad news of the city's fall. Everything Ezekiel predicted happened. And it was then, as the awful consequences of sin gripped these survivors, that Ezekiel announced a new message. God wasn't done with his people. His promised blessings would still be fulfilled. God would take a nation that had just died and bring it back to life. Ezekiel tried to picture God's promised restoration several ways. He stated it directly. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. He illustrated it with his vision of a valley of dry bones coming back to life. These bones are the whole house of Israel. I will open your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And he pictured it symbolically, binding two sticks of wood together to show the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah would again be reunited. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. Great promises, but God wasn't done. He had Ezekiel paint one more picture to show the amazing future in store for his people. And the paint for the canvas came from the salty waters of the Dead Sea itself. God promised not only to bring his people back to the land, he also promised to return to his people. Ezekiel goes into great detail describing God's future temple, including a fountain of living water that will flow from the very place of God's presence. That water, Ezekiel says, will eventually flow into the Jordan Valley and reach the sea. The sea he's describing, of course, is the Dead Sea. And then he gives God's final amazing illustration, and the waters of the sea become fresh. When God returns, he's even going to have the Dead Sea come back to life. Those who've been to Israel know that's not happened yet, but God said it will take place in that day when he fulfills his promises to Israel. Ezekiel goes on to describe the transformation. There will be very many fish. Not only will the waters of the Dead Sea become fresh, the entire body of water will someday be teeming with fish. And then Ezekiel gives the fishing tip of the day, and it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Enigliam, they will be a place for the spreading of nets. There's the best fishing spot in all Israel, or at least it will be the best fishing spot someday. We know where Engedi is. It's on the west side of the Dead Sea, about 10 miles north of Masada. But where is Enigliam? Well, that's a bit of a mystery. This is the only occurrence of the word in the Bible, so bear with me for just a minute as I help unravel the puzzle. The first part of the word, en, is the word for spring. Engedi means spring of the wild goats, and Enigliam means spring of the two calves. So Ezekiel is describing a location between these two springs, and we know where one of them is located. Some believe Enigliam was located on the east side of the Dead Sea in the area of ancient Moab, and they point to Isaiah 15.8 as proof. There Isaiah names several cities in the territory of Moab, one of which he identifies as Egliam. Ezekiel identified the spring of Egliam, and 
Isaiah talked about the town of Eglayim. Couldn't they be the same place? Unfortunately, the answer is no. The words look the same in English, but they're not spelled the same way in Hebrew. They're homonyms, words that sound the same, but that are spelled differently and that have different meanings. Here's an example of an English homonym. The scent of that perfume you sent away for isn't worth a cent. Three English words sound alike, but they're spelled differently and have very different meanings. That's a homonym. And that's also true of the word Eglayim in Isaiah and Ezekiel. They're not the same. So if the spring of the two calves and Eglayim isn't in Jordan, where is it? Actually, I think you're looking at it from here at Qumran. Anfeshka, just below us, is probably the spring described by Ezekiel. And the 20 miles from here to Engedi is going to be the best fishing in all Israel. Someday. God himself guarantees it. But before we turn to head back home, what lesson can we take away from our time here by the Dead Sea? The essence of faith is being willing to trust what God has said in spite of circumstances. The people of Israel thought God would never destroy Jerusalem. It was too big, too important, too well defended. But in the end, what God said would happen, happened. And in the same way, God has promised that the Dead Sea will someday swarm with fish, with the best fishing happening right here. That seems impossible today. But don't bet against God. And the same is true in your life. God has also given you many promises. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe your circumstances or do you believe the promises of God? Trust God and then get your fishing pole ready. That's a good word, Charlie. Trust God and then get your fishing pole ready. Well, the Bible says faith without works is dead. And we're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Trust God and get your fishing pole ready. Maybe you'd like to hear today's devotional again or any of our four segments. You can do that easily at our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Has it been a while since you've written to us? Maybe you've never emailed us? Well, we'd love for you to correct that today. Yeah, you can send us an email any old time at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We would love to know how this program has impacted your life, maybe uh, changed your thinking, uh, maybe helped solve a puzzle, a mystery for you over a passage that you've read in the Bible, whatever it might be. Would you do us that kindness? Think about uh, how you feel when somebody sends you a, a personal email and encourages you. Well, that's exactly what your email will do for us. And again, you connect at the land and the book at moody.edu. Well, our time is gone, but it's always good to connect with you on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, thanking you for hanging out with us. Charlie Dyer is back next week with another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.